There are a lot of quarterbacks in the NFL Draft this year. My name is Ben Solak, and I host the Ringer NFL Draft Show with Danny Kelly, Danny Heifetz, and Greg Horbeck. We cover trades, free agency, and the draft, which is, yeah, obviously. We'll tell you about everything, which includes which quarterbacks are good, which quarterbacks are bad, and which quarterbacks are just Kirk Cousins. That is the Ringer NFL Draft Show. Search the Ringer NFL Draft Show on Spotify. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Callista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. It is Thursday, February 22nd. This past year was the year of the woman in entertainment, we were told. Barbie was number one at the box office. Taylor Swift and Beyonce dominated the summer tours. But the perception wasn't quite reality, at least not according to a new report from the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. Just 30% of the top 100 films of 2023 featured a female lead or co-lead. That's the lowest percentage in a decade for the study, which they've been doing since 2007. And a big drop from the record high in 2022. So what's going on here? After all, when you talk to the top studio and streamer executives, it takes them about two seconds to say they are 100% committed to inclusive storytelling and robust female representation. Many of the studios actually have inclusion policies now or guidelines to follow. And starting this year, the Oscars have a representation and inclusion standard. To be eligible for Best Picture, you have to meet certain thresholds in front of or behind the camera, though many think those standards are mostly symbolic. Yet the numbers here, still not great. This is a catastrophic step back for girls and women in film, the author of the study said. That's Dr. Stacy Smith. She's the founder of the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, as I mentioned, which is a think tank on issues of inequality and entertainment. And we wanted to have her on the show to talk about this inclusion initiative. She puts out great studies on issues relating to gender, race and ethnicity, the LGBTQ community, and more. She's going to break down what the new numbers mean what she thinks of the Oscars move, the tokenism question, and what's holding Hollywood back from better reflecting the real world on screen. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Dr. Stacy Smith, founder of the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative and one of the foremost experts on the diversification efforts in Hollywood over the past decade or two. Welcome, Dr. Smith. It's great to be here, Matt. All right. So let's get into this because I always look at your studies and see what the percentages are. And I got to admit, I was a little surprised this year with the 30% number for female 
leads. That is down from 44% last year. So what's going on? Well, this is one of the reasons why we do research, right? Because top of mind, we hear in the press all the time, it's the year of the woman, right? Sure. There's Barbie, yeah. there's Taylor Swift, Beyonce. And what's interesting about this is that psychologically, we use a process called the availability heuristic. If we can think of a few high-profile examples, we overestimate the class of events, whatever that might be. And this year, because everyone is counting it's the year of the woman, People think the data will be strong and the data are so far from that reality, only 30 films out of 100. And so there's been a real downturn in DEI efforts, right? Well, we'll talk about that. I'm, I'm very interested in your thoughts on what's going on in the DEI space. But specific to this study, you don't include certain things. You don't include ensembles. So 80 for Brady, the book club sequel, those are not included. I would argue those are very female oriented movies. And you also focus on movies released in theaters. So we're not talking about television in general, where I believe the gender numbers are much better. And we're not talking about movies made directly for streaming. I don't know what the numbers are there, but we're talking specifically about movies made for theaters. And is there something about the genres of movies that Hollywood believes perform better in theaters, action adventure, IP driven, horror. Is there something about those genres that tilts more male? So when we think about how these decisions are made, there's a couple of processes that are headwinds against women. One is when executives think director, they think male, right? Because all of the pictures, all of the nomenclature around what it means to be a director is muscular language. So top of mind, women aren't the first thing that folks think of. Secondly, there are biases against women uh, in terms of what they can handle, not what they can actually do. The perceptions of they can't handle big films. They only want to tell small personal stories. They're not interested in tent poles. They can't handle male talent. They don't have the ambition and drive. So these are all mythical statements that when we interviewed executives and agents, this is what they told us to account for the low numbers. And the reason why I bring that up is women directors only get the opportunities typically to tell stories about female leads. So if you want this number to change, you either have to uncouple what women directors can do behind the camera. They can tell all sorts of stories, not just stories about women, but stories about everyone. And secondly, executives have to believe that these are financially lucrative stories and they still do not even with barbie it doesn't matter the success they are still resistant to uh thinking that films about uh girls and women are as prestigious as stories about boys and men but you got to admit it it has changed a little bit over the past decade i mean i I can remember back when I first started at Hollywood Reporter, they would just blame each other. The agencies would blame the studios and say, well, the studios aren't hiring women, so we shouldn't waste our time. And then the studios would say, well, the lists that we're getting of directors don't even have any women on them. How are we supposed to hire them when they're not pitched to us? Right. So those are excuses. And then they diversify the list. And we're still at, what, 10, 11 percent women directors. I beg to differ with you. 30 mm percent -hmm. out of 100. Who goes to the movies? Who's in college classrooms? Who's handling work at home? 
50%. This should be at 50%. So I'm just tired of the excuses of all these executives saying we're trying. No, they're not trying. They're running around creating programs for folks that want to get in the industry. The most important caliber, the most important indicator, who's getting hired? And these data tell me we're back in 2010 because from 2018 to 2022, things were looking up. 2023 was a downturn. So we were talking to to one person and she articulated, oh, it's the strikes. So we went and looked up all of the films that were moved because of the strikes. (laughs) It wouldn't move this number, right? right? So I am not at all optimistic about the direction where entertainment, yes, theatrically released films. If you want to talk about Netflix, they're hitting it out of the park. Their numbers are well over 50%. So this can be done. It has been done. These legacy companies do not know what they're doing, and they really need to consult the experts to create change. And that's simply not what they're doing, and they're losing revenue because of it. The DEI situation at the studios, the diversity initiatives, I feel like we went through a roller coaster over the past few years. 2020, George Floyd, all the studios made new commitments to diversifying. Um, Post Me Too and post Oscars So White, they had already kind of done that. But you really got the sense that they were emphasizing this effort. Now, three and a half, four years later, you see Bob Iger at Disney talking about how he, you know, this is his quote, creators lost sight of what their number one objective needed to be. We have to entertain first. It's not about messages. What did you think when you saw that? Because that could be interpreted as a walk back of Disney's commitment to diverse storytelling. 50% of the population are girls and women. Disney's clocking in at, in 2023, when the norm was 30%, they're at 46% girls and women. And when we think about underrepresented groups, about 40% of the US population identifies with an underrepresented racial ethnic group. Disney's at almost 39 so Disney's been doing well among the studios. That's, that's what I'm saying. So, right. so you can disaggregate any quote you want. I am not interested in the rhetoric. I am interested in change. And these data show that Alan Bergman, Alan Horn, you know, previously, they're walking and making decisions that are more aligned with some of these other studios. And so we can't focus on and deconstruct any particular message because that's what gets us in a lot of trouble. The data reveal hiring practices, and those hiring practices are indications of values, how we perceive talent, and who gets access and opportunity. And so now, is Disney the top performer? Absolutely not. Netflix is, by far. So we can talk about those numbers too, but they're over 50% girls and women. No, I get that, but but I'm interested in Bob Iger's statements because people react to that within the company. When Iger is talking about making the movies not about the messaging and it should not be the objective, we tried to return to our roots is what he said. I've talked to people in the creative structure at Disney who interpret that as we've gone too far in diverse storytelling and messaging in our movies. We have to walk that back. And I want to know whether you believe Disney will walk that back and what you are hearing on that subject. 
I have seen a concerted effort at Disney over the last decade. The dividends are in the numbers. So bring me back next year and let's see what happens sure. in 2024. No, that's totally fair. That is absolutely fair. If they go up or hold, we know that the rhetoric that uh, and the chatter isn't consistent with the decision-making. And I think that's the most fair I can be with data about that particular company. Do you think that with people questioning their DEI programs, or at least looking twice at some of the gains over the past three or four years, do you think these numbers are going to get worse? No, I think they're going to hold here and hover. When we look at race ethnicity, though, where we're seeing the most gains are from distributors outside the legacy companies. That does make me nervous because international content, smaller distributors, they're finding their way with audiences. And it makes me wonder what's going on at Sony, what's going on at Universal, what's going on at Paramount, what's going on at Lionsgate. Why are they not connecting in their storytelling to, with audiences? And we need more authenticity behind the camera to do that. And, and we need to really understand the values, particularly of Gen Z, which this audience is very different than previous audiences and they value inclusion, but authenticity of that inclusivity. And so there's a real challenge here. And these are the numbers that we have to watch the most, again, in comparison to a company like Netflix that does get it right. So it can be done, but why are these companies having trouble? Uh, that That's the empirical question I need some more data to answer. And the funny thing is, is that the data shows that the, at least from what they've released, is that the diverse content at Netflix does very well. And yes. it should be instructive for the overall entertainment community on that issue, now, theatrical films are different than stuff on Netflix. I understand that. But it's a pretty good data point that if you build it, they will come. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership, visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I want to talk a little bit about the Academy and the Oscars and the inclusion initiative that they launched, because this is the first year that the somewhat controversial, but uh, very aggressive Academy inclusion standards were initiated you have to adhere to two of the four categories of inclusion, which means, you know, you have to have diverse people in front of the camera, 30% of the supporting cast, uh, you have to have some of your leads, or you have to have people that are diverse behind the camera, whether in executive jobs or on the, the crew. And I do think it's interesting that <laughs> the first year of these standards, we're probably going to have the most white male best picture winner since maybe Spotlight in 2016. I don't know. 
certainly the whitest contender since 1917 and in 2000. But Oppenheimer is probably going to sweep. Yeah. A lot of people think these Academy standards are pretty toothless and pretty much any company can qualify by using the behind the scenes metrics. What do you think? Did the Academy go far enough on this? When you say toothless, like you're really starting to speak my love language now, Matt. And the question <laughs> is that you're asking. But let me tell you what we did. When the, the, these standards first came out, I was very curious because anytime somebody gives us criteria, the, the, the thing that we do as academics, as a social scientist, we test the criteria. <laughs> and so we looked at right when they came out, the top 100 films, this is a couple of years ago. And we found that somewhere between 90 and 95% of the top 100 films would all meet the criteria of the standards of the the, the academy, yeah. and so I'm like, these are absolutely useless. These are useless if we're it's really a press trying. Release. Yeah, it is a press release. It's more performative actions, really trying to help people think they're making a step forward or creating change when it's really just about doing another dance and not thinking substantively about the issues. So yeah. So what should they do? What should the academy do? Because listen. I hear this from people throughout the membership of the Academy that, you know, when you reduce the creative arts to a question of which gender and which race is getting the job, it feels reductive. It feels tokenistic. It feels anti-creative. So what should the Academy do in this situation? What I really want these companies in the Academy, these para-organizations to think through is, why do they keep making the same decisions over and over? And why do they look the same way? Right? I mean, that's a very basic question. And so if we think about that, and we did this study not too long ago with Reframe, and it was really out of a curiosity I had about what made money. And what made money, you know, it's a sophisticated question in terms of who performs at the box office, because you just can't use simple statistics to answer the question. It's pretty complicated. And you have to look at all the production distribution exhibition factors, and you have to use those factors to then look at, um, you know, rent at the box office, uh, both domestically and internationally. The most interesting finding from this investigation was from 2007 to 2018, 2019, in that time frame, the support given to white men in comparison to the support given to women of color, support, meaning who's centered in the story. There is a 15 billion with a B deficit in reparations that are due to women of color, meaning Reparations by who? All of these companies that we're just mentioning. Because here is the issue. People reduce to gender, to race. No, we're talking about talent. And from the second, women, people of color, women of color in particular, want to be involved in the industry, the financial support given to those films, to those marketing campaigns, to the salaries of these actors, it is fundamentally different. And so we're Are you talking, talking now about, or in the history of Hollywood? No, I'm talking from 2007 to 2019. Ah, okay. All right. Okay. So the answer to your question is they need to find talent. When they feel uncomfortable, they need to lean into it. Because if you have a white room making a decision about an underrepresented story, you probably don't have the right people in the room. So 
all of these organizations need to work together to understand decision-making, to understand the financial realities of how they have oppressed specific groups and understand that though they think they know what they're choosing when it comes to talent, when it comes to authenticity, when it comes to powerful storytelling, they are at a complete disconnect from the audience and from talent. And so those executive decision-making bodies, whether it's the voters of the academy, the green lighting teams at these companies, they need to change and they need to change fast. I mean, the big joke is in a couple of Mondays, I'm going to go into class and I'm going to say, how many of you watch the Oscars? And if two or three people raise their hand, I'll say, how many more years will this be televised? Because the audience doesn't care. I agree with you on that. The diversity efforts at the Academy have been pretty significant over the past decade, though. Wouldn't you agree? The number of people that they have led into the Academy, the types of films that are getting nominated and even winning are very different since 2016, 2017 than they were in the 90 years before that. The empirical question is, are these folks okay with change at a speed that's so slow that we will not get there in any of our lifetimes. If they're okay with that, but but the problem is, come to USC, Matt, walk around. It's not the campus any of us knew in the 80s or the 90s. Oh yeah, I taught a class at Annenberg a couple of years ago. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, and so this is what's happening across the country. The world has changed and I fear for these folks. They don't spend much time outside of their bubble because the audience disconnect, the streaming focus, where those stories are going, it's not tenable. Well, the diversity situation in the executive suites, as particularly at the film studios, is is kind of a joke. It's it's ridiculous. It's gotten better, but it hasn't gotten much better over the past five to seven years. And there's going to be a workforce crisis because folks that are coming up through the ranks of these companies or graduating from colleges, they don't want to work at these legacy companies because of these very issues. Well, there's a lot of issues going on. If you want to be a billionaire, you go to tech now. You don't try to become David Geffen. But I agree. And there's a lot of other things, the reasons why people don't watch the Oscars. They are distracted by 20 other devices. But there is a disconnect, I think, between the executive suites in Hollywood, which are largely older and whiter and much more male than the audience that they are trying to reach with their product. And that's across age. It's across gender. It's across race. And that is a big problem. I disagree a little bit about the Academy's responsibility for this problem. And this has been the case since Oscar So White was a big deal. You know, the Academy, they're being shown the movies that are being made and are making decisions on quality based on what is coming through the theaters. And they do have a responsibility to be more diverse, but the Oscars are not Hollywood. People equate them with Hollywood. They're kind of not. They are an awards body, essentially. And they tend to take the brunt of the criticism from people like you and often people like me, but they are really just working with what they're given. Who's in the body of the Academy? I totally agree with you. Hollywood. But is it an individual cinematographer's fault that he or she, mostly he, was invited into the Academy? There are systematic issues that have caused the Academy to be overwhelmingly white and male over the years. And it seemed, it always seemed to me like the Academy was 
the target, but it wasn't the cause of those imbalances. The academy represents a a symptom of a much greater ecosystem problem. And yet I disagree that cinematographer, who are his camera operators? Who's on his team? Who's on that director's team? People he went to film school with. Exactly. People that that were ADs and people that were on the set. It's not that hard to change. I I mean, I I agree with you. No, no, I'm agreeing with you on that. I think that individual cinematographer does have a responsibility to look out outside his comfort zone and bring people in. I'm just saying that it's not necessarily the Academy's fault that that cinematographer is recommending other white men to be in the Academy. Like, that's sort of how it's worked. And they, they've done the only thing that they can do, which is to broaden the canvas and invite in a bunch more diverse and international and younger people than were previously considered. And that is sort of their only weapon in this fight. I, I, you know, they could put in a, an inclusion standard where if your movie does not have a diverse lead, full stop, you will not be nominated for Best Picture. But I do think that is kind of anti-creative. Are we going to say no to Oppenheimer because it's about a white male from the 1940s? Like, that's kind of how it was. If you made Oppenheimer diverse, it wasn't make sense. It wouldn't be Oppenheimer. Yeah, I, I hear your argument. But, you know, we think about what Lin-Manuel Miranda did historically and, you know, smash success on Broadway. And so we can talk all we want. Inclusion is everyone's issue. Everywhere you turn in this industry, it's a shut door if you are from a historically marginalized community. And that is such a narrow and myopic view of talent. And so, no, it is the Academy's problem. It's all of these legacy studios problems. It's film school dean's problems. That, yes, I agree everybody, with you on all that. Everybody. Yes. And for when people do watch the awards, if they only see a sea of white, I mean, come on, that's not creativity. That's a bunch of people navel gazing and thinking about how do we get our buddies up there? That That's not art. Art is expansive and creative and represents all groups. And so, so I would say, yes, the Academy has a role. They should take a note out of what Harvey Mason Jr. is doing over at the Recording Academy. His numbers are changing. So bottom line here, what is your call to action? What is your message from this study? Other than simply hire more diverse people, what is something that each of these studios could do today that would improve the numbers? Sundance is an incredible vehicle. What Hollywood likes to do is they like to focus on who has the buzz, the top director. Look at the whole slate of directors. Those are eight people that know how to create art, get it to the festival. You know, we've analyzed those submissions. They're competing with thousands of individuals for eight spots. Don't take just the top person. Go after all eight and start embedding them in the ecosystem of these companies that have both film, television, and streaming platforms and start hiring them for directing content throughout. Because the more we move from the film school to the festival, right to, you know, get people directing films earlier in their career, because now the prestigious content is on streaming and and TV. Get them hired quickly. Get them building career sustainability. Allow them to not have to take other jobs and leave the industry. And with who's coming out of TIFF, who's coming out of Sundance, who's coming out of Tribeca, who's coming out of many of these festivals in the United States, 
there is a group of individuals that look more like the world we live in, get them onboarded into these companies and working as quickly as possible to have the same access and opportunity that their white male peers have. All right, Dr. Stacey Smith, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, are you downloading the Apple Sports app they just launched? Maybe. It depends because I don't really care about how that like how well an app is designed for scores. There are plenty of apps that already do that. I love Yahoo Sportacular. That's a great app. But however, if Apple can make it easy to quickly transition between games on your phone and go to watch a college basketball game and then switch to an NBA game, then I will definitely do that. Yeah, this is for me. I need this app. I am a Luddite. I do not have the Yahoo apps. I like Apple products, and I would absolutely use an app to check on scores and potentially watch games. And that is what I think is going on here. That's my prediction today. This is a pretty clear indication that Apple is all in on sports. They are going after big league sports rights beyond soccer and Friday night baseball, which they currently have. They are going to bid for NBA. They are going to try to make this Apple sports app the hub of the future of sports viewing. It's pretty clear to me. So the idea here is like, oh, I want to watch UNC versus Duke and it's on CBS. I can just tap the game within the Apple sports app and it'll take me to my, you know, Apple TV plus home screen and open up CBS for me and the game will be playing. That is the idea, right? Yeah, but right now what it does, it takes you to the app where it's playing. But that doesn't mean that's what it's always going to do. I mean, maybe at some point everything flows through Apple and they become essentially the iTunes of sports where if you want to watch any game, you come through. I mean, Amazon is trying to do this as well with its channels service where they are selling you HBO in addition to Amazon Prime Video. And they're looking to the future where you are either going to go to your Apple TV or go to your phone and click on sports and be able to watch whatever you want to watch right there. And that is honestly, that's the holy grail. Yeah, I personally use Apple TV and I like it as like, I like having all my apps in one place. It's nice. It's it's clean. And I guess they're just extending that to sports and, and an app on your phone. It's really not that different than what they already have with Apple TV on your television screen. They're just kind of twisting it to make it a sports app on your phone. Yeah, because people like you are gravitating to sports. You're not going to like have a, a hub based around whatever reality show you like. You're going to have a hub based around the sports that you like. They know that. I also think it means that Apple's going to get more into betting. I mean, they are doing betting lines and being more of a betting interface there. And I think Apple will likely get into gaming much more. You mean they're just showing the betting lines like yeah. on the app? But imagine how valuable it would be to a betting app to be the exclusive provider to something like Apple. I don't know that they would do that, but like it's all about having the platform. That's Apple's entire services business is based on the fact that you, they have the phone. A billion people have the phones and they're building the services business around that. Yeah, but the issue still stands. Like if I don't pay for... CBS Sports and the Dodgers Network and TNT. Yeah, sure. Apple can push me in those directions. But if I'm not paying for any of those, it still sucks. Like, I, yeah. it, it, you know, it, it would be easier if, if Apple actually had the rights to all of these. Sports, <laughs> it obviously. would be, wouldn't it? If, if <laughs> one company had all the sports rights, that well, would that's be why very I'm like, easy. This is cool, I guess. But they're just they're just pushing me towards an app that I might not be signed up for anyway. And, and it, Listen, but you know what? Cable was not one company. 
Cable was multiple companies all through one interface. Yeah, but you could pay for it in one fell swoop, which exactly. you can't now. That's what Apple wants. Apple wants to take your $100 and serve you a bunch of different channels and do it through this sports interface. I'm ready for that. I am too. I think a lot of people are, but it'll just make Apple more powerful, which, you know, maybe isn't the best thing in the world, but who knows? All right. That's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Stacey Smith. I want to thank Craig Horlbeck, our producer, Jesse Lopez, our editor, and I want to thank you. We will see you next week. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.